I'm preaching through the Gospel of John, and over the last six weeks, we have looked at chapter six of the Gospel of John. But today, we're going to hit the accelerator, and we're going to do all of chapter seven. We took our time in chapter six because it was full of both confusing and comforting words of Jesus. But chapter seven is essentially a couple days where people are not coming to Jesus. And when they do come, they're coming for the wrong reasons. They are responding to Jesus wrongly. And so we're going to look at John chapter 7, verses 1 through 52. I'd encourage you to have your bulletins out in front of you or your Bibles out in front of you. If you're curious and you're like, well, what about verse 53? Well, there's this long note in there in your Bibles, if you've got them, that Chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11 was not in the earliest manuscripts. And so I won't be preaching that today or next week, but next week during Sunday school, we're going to take about 15 minutes to talk about that passage. So if you're a completist and you just got to hear what I need to what I'm going to say about that passage, just come to Sunday school next week. You may hear about other things as well, but you're going to hear about that. Uh, And so we'll be doing that next week down in Sunday school as well. Uh, But today we are looking at verses 1 through 52 in John chapter 7. So let's hear the word of the Lord, John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, 
and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true in him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. 
Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that you speak to us your truth. And we pray, O God, that you would give us ears to hear. That today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word would go forth as the rain that falls on the earth and blesses it and brings forth life. We pray that your word would fall on us today on hearts ready to be changed by you, on minds needing to be shaped by you. We ask, O God, that you would have your word do its work. Use me, in spite of my sins, to faithfully proclaim your word. And use us, O God, as hearers to hear and to believe your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's a long chapter. We got it in front of us. But it's essentially just a couple days at the temple. It's a bunch of people talking about Jesus. And Jesus talking about people talking about him. And what we see here, I want us to point out three unbelieving approaches to Jesus. Where people try to dictate the terms of engagement to Jesus. Where they are coming to Jesus, essentially trying to tell him what to do or make him do what they want him to do. And we're going to show that that is not the way, but we need to see the believing approach of simply coming to Jesus. And so in the passage, the first unbelieving approach I want us to see is in his brothers. And his brothers want to coach Jesus. Chapter 7 picks up roughly six months after the events of chapter 6, where we saw that many of Jesus' disciples no longer walked with him. That his very large following had withered down to the twelve and a few others. And so we find Jesus here with his family, specifically with his younger brothers and perhaps sisters as well. And his brothers appear to be well-intentioned, and yet we're told in verse 5 that they did not believe in him. That Jesus' brothers at this point in time did not believe in him. So for those of you out there who blame yourselves because your family members don't believe in Jesus, take comfort from this verse. Jesus himself lived among his brothers for decades, never once sinning, perfectly revealing God's righteousness. And yet, in his own house, people did not believe in him. They believed he could do miracles, but they did not believe him. That's because saving faith is a work of God that is not guaranteed to happen in even the godliest household, even where Jesus is physically living there. This verse tells us it's not your fault. It tells us to continue to be faithful and to pray for the salvation of your loved ones. But back to the brothers. Because the brothers see that Jesus is understandably dejected because so many people turned away from him. So they try to comfort him, coach him. 
They urge him, hey, come up to the feast of booths with us. We'll make one of those like leafy tent things to stay in for the week. But it's not just that Jesus is feeling blue that they want him to come along. They are offering him advice or coaching on how to build up his following again. And their advice is essentially go to where the crowds are and do your magic tricks. Work your miracles. They tell him, show yourself to the world. They know he can do miracles. They know he's an impressive teacher. He just needs to use this big stage to get his name back out there. That if you want to make it big, you've got to get out of Galilee. Get to Jerusalem where the movers and shakers are and you can reach the most people there. But Jesus does not accept their advice and not simply because he is the older and wiser brother. You know, we always know they're correct. His brothers are telling him to win the world's approval. They are offering him worldly, on, worldly advice on how to build your brand and market yourself. But Jesus did not come to win the world. In fact, he says the world hates him because he testifies that the world is evil. As John wrote earlier in chapter 3, the world loves darkness rather than light. That the world will not love Jesus. And so Jesus cannot try to be more likable and desirable. It's not going to work. But that doesn't stop people from trying to coach Jesus, just like his brothers did. Many people even today try to coach Jesus and his church into winning the approval of the world. And so we may try to make our church more marketable to younger generations by saying, this isn't your grandma's church. By trying to make church feel like a place that they are more comfortable going, whatever that place may be. We may try to win the approval of certain segments of our world by appealing to the progressive left or the conservative right, saying this is a church for these kinds of people. We want to win your approval. We may try to win the approval of a consumer culture by offering people resources and programs to be consumed at your convenience because we are here for you, for whatever you want. But by coaching Jesus and his church on how to win the approval of the world, we sidetrack Jesus's true mission. His mission is to obey his father's will. See, Jesus is not lying to his brothers. He is simply saying, today is not the time for me to go to the feast. I follow the father's time schedule, not the world's and certainly not yours, little bros. I'm following the father's will. I am not going there to build my brand. I am going there to do what the Father wants me to do. And that involves testifying to the world's evil works. And so the church today, likewise, must not seek the approval of the world when we are called to testify to its evil works. And we do that by proclaiming the good news of salvation. That this is what the world needs from Jesus. It's what the world needs from his church. And so the first unbelieving approach we see in our passage is we try to coach Jesus and to be more marketable and approvable by the world. The second unbelieving approach is seen in the crowd at the feast. 
that Jesus ends up privately going to the feast. And even though he's not drawing attention to himself, he is the subject of much conversation. The religious leaders in Jerusalem are trying to catch him saying or doing something wrong. And others are just curious about him. But this curiosity is seen primarily in an attitude of critiquing Jesus. That Jesus is just an interesting spectacle. Not a godly leader to humbly learn from. And so Jesus shows up at the festival midway through the feast and he probably starts teaching his 12 disciples. He did this in public, but not on a large stage. It would be like him going to the Washington County Fair and just bringing his 12 disciples around the dairy barn and just talking to them. And then slowly people start gathering around like, who's this guy? What's he talking about? (gasps) And then they start listening. It's public, but not trying to get everyone to see him. And as we read through chapter 7, it kind of goes back and forth between Jesus and the crowd. But it's a different kind of back and forth. You'll notice the crowd doesn't speak to Jesus. They speak about Jesus. That when the crowd talks about Jesus, it is always in the third person. They are talking about Jesus to each other muttering to one another. And the only time they say you when they are talking directly to Jesus is in verse 20, where they just kind of blurt out, you have a demon who's trying to kill you. And that's not really a question. It's just a reaction to what Jesus has been saying. Other than that, the crowd is always muttering to each other, evaluating Jesus. And so you can think of this crowd at the feast kind of like a more interested version of Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets. Those two old guys who just poke fun at Fozzie and Kermit, that they're just up there. They're not part of the show, but they're happy to tell you what's wrong with the show. See, they're close enough to observe, but they're far enough removed to be safe. They are willing to appreciate some of what they hear, but they're not shy about sharing their criticism. The crowd is interested in the idea of Jesus. He's different. He's unique. He's untrained. And yet he's so knowledgeable. The authorities don't like him, but they're also not like arguing or debating with him either. Maybe he's the Christ. Maybe he's a prophet. And yet, as intrigued as they are, they cannot get past their own skepticism. You know, Jesus really didn't burst on the scene like we were expecting the Messiah to come. He wasn't anybody special growing up. He's from Galilee. I thought the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They must not have gotten that news yet. He's done a lot of signs, but he's he's not really as impressive as I was hoping he would be. The crowd is evaluating Jesus like he's on a job interview. And they're looking at his resume like, "Eh, you think he's Messiah material? Or he's on a dating show and he's a contestant. Like, does he get the rose? I don't know. You know, maybe. We'll see. Many people can approach Jesus with this critiquing attitude. You know, Jesus sounds interesting. I'm just busy on Sundays. 
I'm sure he's a good guy. But I wish he would have come when I was alive so I could have actually seen him. You know, church does help a lot of people, but there's a lot of hypocrites there too. Yeah, Jesus is clearly an important world figure, but I just can't get on board with worshiping someone that sends people to hell. You know, Christianity sounds great and all, but where's God been for 2,000 years when all this bad stuff's been happening? You know, so much of what I read in the Bible is good, but this one thing, I just don't like that. See, if we take these critiquing approaches, something will always hold us back no matter how interested we are. And it's because we're sinners. And something about God will always be displeasing to us. But Jesus did not come to be evaluated by us. He came to tell us the truth and evaluate us. That we must be willing to accept that there is a God who has the right to critique and to judge us and not the other way around. And so the second unbelieving approach we see in this passage is this attitude of critique that the crowd shows us. And the third unbelieving approach to Jesus is seen in the Jewish religious leaders. And they loom over this whole chapter like a shadow. We hear all the way in verse 1 about their murderous intentions. And we see at the end of the chapter their plot to arrest Jesus is foiled. That they have already made up their mind about Jesus and their approach is to condemn him. But why? I mean, these are the people who know the most about the Jewish scriptures. And yet they are convinced this guy isn't the Messiah. Why is that? Well, we have to go back to chapter 5, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem to find the answer. In chapter 5, we see Jesus heal a paralyzed man, which doesn't seem like something that gets you in trouble, but apparently it does, because he did it on the Sabbath. He healed this man on the Sabbath and had the nerve to tell him to get up, carry his bed, and go home. And to the Jewish religious leaders... To their interpretation of the Sabbath, both of those things were wrong. And so this miracle from chapter 5 is the one work he mentions in verse 21. And Jesus says, how is that wrong? You guys do the same thing. That depending on when a baby is born, if he needs to be circumcised on the Sabbath, you do it. Even though that's a work you recognize that that's more important. Isn't healing this guy more important? Shouldn't that be permissible? Now, we have the privilege of looking back 2,000 years and we can see how blind the Jewish leaders were to prioritize their own Sabbath interpretation over the healing of a paralyzed man. They had such tunnel vision about their cleverly devised Sabbath rules that they couldn't see what Jesus did and who he could be. When you read through the Gospels, you you should really just be taken aback every time. Like, how are they so mad that he healed a guy? But why, why are you mad about that? We look at their Sabbath rules in comparison with what Jesus is offering, and we're like, why would you take this instead of Jesus? See, the leaders were so committed to their approach that they condemned anyone who disagreed with them as well. 
They belittled them. They cursed them. They sent that temple guard out. Go arrest Jesus. And when he came back, because Jesus was so impressive, they mocked him. They mocked him. How could you think he's anything other than a charlatan? We know better. Have any of us believed in him? Then you shouldn't either. Nicodemus is here just saying, point of order, um, shouldn't we give this guy a trial? And they immediately are like, what's wrong with you? You've been taken in as well. We see the leaders as selfish, power-hungry, as insecure about their position. They are so set on being in charge of themselves and others, they can't even consider, what if we like listened to Jesus? What if we did that? How many people today outright refuse the idea of believing in God because they don't want to believe in God? How many people dismiss religion without a fair hearing because they are absolutely certain they know better? How many people condemn Jesus and his church because it challenges their deeply held belief that they can do whatever they want. We can see that in others, but what should scare us most about the leaders is these were incredibly religious people. See, it wasn't the temple guard that was deceived, it was the leaders. They weren't condemning Jesus, they were condemning themselves. And we as Christians in the Reformed tradition must remember that we are all sinners individually. And collectively, since the church is full of sinners, we must always be asking, how does the church need to be reformed, to be changed, to be called out of its sins that we are treasuring? That we need to be willing to let Jesus challenge us. And especially in those places we feel the most defensive and possessive. Because if the Jewish leaders could not see their self-deception, there's a chance we might not see it either. And so these three unbelieving approaches to Jesus make up the bulk of chapter 7. And as you look at them, you can't help but sympathize with Jesus. Here he is. He goes up to Jerusalem, to the holy city of God's people. He's going during a sacred celebratory feast where they remember how great God is. And yet, no one was coming to him. They were near him. They weren't coming to him. And so God in the flesh is standing in the courts of his own holy temple, shouting out to the crowd, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And not that many were coming. All they had to do was come. Come thirsty, sensing their need and looking to Jesus to provide. He did not want them to come with suggestions. He did not want them to come to debate. He wanted them to come. And if they did, He promised to give them the Holy Spirit who would well up in their hearts like streams of living water, a spirit that has the power to overflow in their lives like streams that would bless the lives of those around them. And Jesus said, this is for anyone who comes. Just come. We are told that many believed in him, but many more did not. 
And looking back at chapter 6, we can make sense of why so few came to him. We read in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That God must intervene. And so I don't know about you, but I imagine there are times when you get discouraged that not many people come to Jesus. That you get just bummed out. That Jesus is here. Christians are sharing the good news and not many people are coming. We may be especially discouraged if it's our own family members not coming to him. But scripture tells us this is normal. It happened to Jesus in the temple all that week at the Feast of Booths. But we are also assured that the Father is giving many people to Jesus so that they will come to Him. For when the Spirit flows through us, we become His witnesses in the world. Just as Peter and John testified in our New Testament reading that they would keep talking about Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is how Jesus calls out today. It is through us. And so may the Jesus who quenches our thirst fill us with the Spirit in us, through us, as we pray for people to come to Jesus and believe in Him and join in the great feast in the day to come. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we, we thank You for the, the words that tell us that people may not come but also the hope that many will come. Help us to not be discouraged, but to remain faithful, to be prayerful and vigilant as we seek to share the good news with others. We pray, O oh God, that we would not come to Jesus trying to coach or critique Him, but that we would come to humbly listen, to be critiqued and judged by Him, to be told the way that we should go. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would please help us to live as your people. We pray that the Spirit would well up in our hearts in such a way that rivers of living water flow from Jesus through us by the Spirit and out towards others as well. And that those who are thirsty desperately in their soul might see in us the hope of where their thirst can be quenched. It's in our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.